HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Esther Mobley. We'll talk to Esther about wine, writing about wine, women in wine, and a lot more. I hope we can get to everything. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Massachusetts-born Esther Mobley is the wine critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. After finishing Smith College, Esther pursued a path in wine, working harvests, wine shops, restaurants, interning at one wine magazine, assistant editor at another, and now the San Francisco Chronicle. Esther Mobley looks at wine not just as a story, but through the people, place, and culture. Esther predominantly covers California wine in addition to beer, spirits, and drinking culture for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Esther. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. Um, I'm excited about the show. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Um, There's a lot of stuff I want to cover with you and get your take on. But before we jump into everything, um, I want you to give the listeners a little background in your journey in life and wine that currently got you at the wine critic desk at the San Francisco Chronicle. How'd we get there? Uh, Kind of haphazardly and gradually, but um, I uh, wanted to be a writer my whole life. That was um, my dream. And for a while, it seemed like that was kind of an unrealistic dream in terms of a profession. I mean, I just thought, it's like 
being a musician or <laughs> wanting to be an actor. You know, a lot of people want to do this, and very few people actually make a living at it. So um, I assumed that I would write on the side. It would kind of be a hobby. And that's why I didn't initially try to pursue um, a job related to it right after college. I had been an English major at Smith. Um, I studied literature and, um, you know, I, I was at a, a liberal arts college that didn't really give a lot of guidance as to what you were going to do after school. It was just <laughs> That's funny. Trying to encourage you to open your mind while you were there. Um, and it was really on a lark that I started kind of searching around the internet for wine jobs. I didn't know anything about wine. I didn't grow up in a household that really drank wine. Um, I, it, it wasn't, I mean, I, I drank wine like a lot of college students drink wine as a kind of party right. lubricant. Right. But um, there was certainly no real interest in it or knowledge basis or mentor in my life. And uh, I kind of started poking around. I Somehow the idea just sounded romantic to me. And once I discovered that there was such a position as a harvest intern, someone who would, you know, get to sign on for a few months working on a vineyard, that just sounded like the dream post-college gap year activity to me. I mean, I know most people who are harvest interns are really serious, uh, you know, aspiring winemakers on a career track, but I just thought that sounds better than the Peace Corps or Teach for America or... No kidding. You know, yeah. Um, Was this the... Did you do the harvest right after senior year? Yes. Well, yeah. So I started in August after my senior year. And the the way, I mean, I, I was just kind of bumbling around the internet trying to figure out how to make this happen once it got into my mind. But I ended up finding a Smith alumna, Helen Keplinger, um, who's a winemaker in Napa. Did and you know who I, Helen was? I had no idea. I mean, wow! It, I just had no idea. At the time, she was the winemaker for Bryant Estate, a right. really obviously highly respected winery, and that meant nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just thought, oh, cool, here's an alumna who, who her job title in the alumni database says winemaker. So I cold called her, and she, um, like a lot of Smith graduates tend to be, was immediately so eager to help me and said, what can I do? Ask me anything you need. Let me help introduce you to some people. And she really helped me make it happen. Um, and she certainly didn't have to. And she's done that, by the way, for a number of other Smith graduates. Nice. She's really helped a lot of women. Nice. So you do your first harvest. And... So I moved. Yeah, I, I had never been to California before. I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to school in Massachusetts. And um, you might imagine what Napa seemed like to me. I mean, I just felt like this was the dream. What an amazing, beautiful place. I had never seen mm. any place like it. I was surrounded by people who were making a career in wine, which I just had no basis for even knowing that was a possibility for anyone's life. And um, I got to work with my hands. I mean, you know, I hadn't had a lot of jobs before that where I was really being physical and outdoors. I had never taken a science class in all of college, thanks to liberal arts education. And suddenly <laughs> I was funny. learning how to do lab work. I mean, it was really just um, wonderful. It was a really great experience, and I fell in love with it. And I was surrounded by people who were who were serious about this. Who were, you know, a lot of several of my other harvest interns had master's degrees from Davis, and they were really intelligent, talented, ambitious people. And I just thought, whoa, okay, this is cool. Mm. Um, maybe maybe this is a career path. So that wasn't necessarily the defining moment, but it certainly sealed your interest to probably stay with it and move forward in wine, right? Yes, yes. Um, about halfway through that fall, so, I mean, how long is a harvest job? Maybe five months or so. 
I uh, I started applying for harvest internships in the southern hemisphere so that I could continue learning. And um, I very nearly went to New Zealand. I got a internship there, but in the end, I uh, went to Mendoza, Argentina. Mm, beautiful. And yeah, it really is beautiful. Where I, did you work um, there? I have to go back. I worked at um, the name of the winery is Bodega Roland. It is Michelle Roland's ah. winery in Mendoza, but um, there's no real wines from that winery don't bear that domain name. The the main wine that gets exported to the U.S. that comes out of there is called Clos de los Siete, and it's actually a kind of collaborative wine from these five adjacent estates. It's in the Uco Valley. Um, it's uh, near the town of uh, Vista Flores. Right. Um, really beautiful. Uh, I mean, I lived in a little hut in the middle of a vineyard and could see the Andes Mountains wow. from my bedroom. It was really, really beautiful. And um, such a different type of um, place. I mean, I had been in Napa in 2011, which was this harvest um, of rain and mold, and everyone was worried about botrytis. And Argentina was this kind of more arid, right. uh, you know, mountainous. It was just a different different place. I was I kept asking are you worried about Botrytis? Because that was all I knew. And they were like, we haven't gotten that in 20 years. That's funny. That's funny. So you mm-hmm. do, you, so good, good um, side by side work in Napa in Argentina. You know, you were exposed to a lot of different things. You finish that up and what do you do? You obviously have to head back, right? I had to head back. And I, for who knows now, it's hard to really remember what was going through my head that, but, for whatever reason, I kind of decided I wasn't going to do another harvest. I loved wine, I knew, but I felt like I wasn't really cut out to be a winemaker. And I still felt at that point like my life was tethered to the East Coast. And so I moved back to Boston, where I'm from, and I got a job at a restaurant there called Le Spalier. It actually just recently closed, but wow. um, really great restaurant, um, fine dining in downtown Boston, uh, with a really, really great wine list. And, uh, I don't think I had worked in restaurants before I'd worked in restaurants in high school and through college as a server, but, um, they, I think gave me the job because I had wine experience and I learned quite a lot about wine there. It was a really, you know, I mean, it was an environment with really top sommeliers and, uh, great food and, um, I that it felt like a kind of continuation of the wine education I've been getting over the right. previous year. How long did you do that? I was there maybe. I mean, this is this this is how quickly life moved in that period of time. It's hard to believe, but maybe four months or so. Oh. And I was looking. I mean, I was living with my parents by that point. I was a year out of college, and it was it ended up being a helpful um, way station for me. But at, at the time, I just thought is this what I'm going to do? I don't know. And I, on a whim, applied to an internship at Wine Enthusiast Magazine, which is in Westchester County. And that was kind of my first move into wine writing. In retrospect, I mean, if if I ever advised... That was in New York, right? So you came to New yeah, York? Yeah. Okay. I, I moved to New York and for this internship. At that point, I didn't really know where that was going to go. And I had seen the internship job posting online wherever I saw it, and I just thought, whoa, wine and writing? Could I really potentially combine these two passions of mine? Uh, and so so I applied to that, but um, it wasn't as if at that moment I had these grand plans of making a career as a wine writer. I was just kind of taking one step at a time, one job at a time, and thought that it sounded like a really fun environment to be in. And it worked out to be that? It was. I mean, I ultimately, they didn't offer me. I was, I hoped they, you know, they kind of dangled a little, this could turn into a job in front of me, and right. it didn't. And so I got restless after a few months and was thinking, you know, I by then had moved into Manhattan and was commuting out to Westchester and felt like I needed a little more stability. And so um, I just thought, well, what has this qualified me for? I guess a job at another wine magazine. And so um, 
I I was introduced to James Molesworth, who I know has been on your show. Right, not, James, not a friend, ago. good guy. Yeah, um, Helen introduced me to James, Helen Keplinger. Right. And I I cold emailed him and said, hi, you know, I'm a young person who's <laughs> uh, become very interested in wine. I would love to be a wine writer. Uh, could I meet you? Would you talk to me? And he said, sure, we don't have any jobs available here, but come on in and, and we'll meet. So I came in and uh, met with James Molesworth, and he was very kind to me. I mean, I this was back when the offices used to be on Park Avenue. Right. And uh, and he said, well, okay. I mean, he kind of quizzed me a little. It was funny. I remember feeling a little self-conscious about, whoa, what was this? Uh, but he took me around and he introduced me to some other people in the office, including Tom Matthews, the executive editor. Right. And they were very kind to me, cordial to me, you know, then I left and they said, okay, we'll see you. And I just thought, well, that's probably not going to turn into anything. And um, a few weeks later, it really wasn't very long after that, Tom called me and said, um, unexpectedly, we have a staff member who's leaving, a job's available, would you like to come in and interview for it? And I said, how's tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and they, they offered me the job that day. So the position was uh, to assist Tom. Exactly. I was to be his assistant. And um, it was clear to me that he, he made this very clear that uh, he always hired assistants who he hoped would continue to advance through the editorial chain of command at the magazine. And sure enough, there were several people who had editorial roles there who had started off as his assistants. So I had a lot of confidence that if I put work in hard, if I put work in and, um, and really did my best, that there was going to be a possibility for me to advance. And uh, there was. And within about eight months, someone else above me left and I got bumped up and um, bumped up to what that was where assistant editor. Okay. So um, I was in charge of the, a few of the front of book sections. I mean, if you open wine spectator, right. there's little blurb, have, not blurbs, yeah, but little short uh, notices. Pieces, what right. They call the grapevine. Um, and before you get into the features. And so um, I was in charge of some of those pages. I was editing. I was, um, pitching to other editors as much as I could. I was really hungry to write as much as I could. And um, I saw a really clear path there. I saw a lot of people like James who um, had started there in junior roles and had really advanced into really interesting roles. And I just thought, hey, if I stick around here, I can write features. I could get a tasting beat. I could, uh, you know, be scoring wine, and that was my goal. That was what I hoped to do. And you were there, what, over three years? How did it work out yeah. in your mind? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was there about three years, and um, I was really happy there. I mean, at a certain point, and this is where I, I can't really tell you when did I know this was my career, because you start out having these kind of menial jobs and then someone gives you a chance and you take it. And soon enough you say, Hey, I'm good at this. I'm, I love doing this. And I started to just feel really fortunate that I had happened into this incredible niche. I mean, I just, you know, kids probably don't grow up thinking I want to be a wine writer. It's not advertised at the career fair. And, um, I felt really fortunate, and I thought I'm in a place that's going to help mentor me through this. Um, so what? And so, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, well, it's just to say I, I really had no designs on leaving, but when uh, I, when John Bonnet announced that he was going to be leaving the Chronicle, um, and I read his work, I admired his work, um, I had a moment in my head where I thought, you know, Jobs like these in this very niche, specialized field become available so rarely. If I don't at least throw my hat in the ring, I'll regret it, and another job might not pop up for 10 more years. So That was thought, the right attitude. I'll give it a shot. Yeah, 
yeah, it, it, I'm really grateful it turned out well. No, you threw your age, your sex, <laughs> your experience to the wind and still applied, right? Yeah, I mean, I thought there's no way I'm uh, qualified for this. They're going to want someone who has a real name, who is uh, kind of a, a known entity, who has an existing reputation, and I was a nobody. Um, I see now that my kind of uh, open-mindedness was was uh, something that worked in my favor, and that I hopefully conveyed to them I was eager to experiment and uh, be different, and I was still finding my voice. I probably still am finding my voice. Do you um, do you think that was? you know, they were looking for a little different direction than the past and saw all of that in you? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think they were really happy with John. I know they were. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, he he took the San Francisco Chronicle, I think, into, from, from you know, it, the Chronicle's always been really well-respected for its food section, and it's always been known to have a really fabulous food section. And still, we invest more than almost all newspapers in America in having vibrant food coverage. But I think John really made the wine coverage uh, national, even international, and And um, I'm so grateful to him for that. Plus the proximity (laughs) to Napa, Sonoma, and all that became important. Um, Right. right, So they offer you the job, and that was, what, almost three, four years ago? That was in 2015. So 2015. in August, yeah, in August, I'll have been in my job four years. All right. So let's talk about that. Um, let's tell people, you know, what's your beat? What are you tasked to cover <laughs> for the um, paper? You know, be specific. So um, my title is Wine Critic. And when I started, my title was Wine, Beer, and Spirits Writer. Uh, and over time, I and my editors have kind of refined that to better suit, A, my interests and my skills, but also the, you know, the kind of priorities that the paper has in terms of our coverage. So um, I operate as part of our food team. We produce every Sunday the food and wine section that goes in the paper. Right. Um, we have several staff writers. And... In one sense, I'm just like any other beat reporter at the paper. My beat happens to be wine. And, um, you know, just like we cover the heck out of the Golden State Warriors, we think that, and, you know, Google and Salesforce, we think that wine is um, an incredibly important part of the Bay Area, Northern California's culture. It's a huge part of its economy. And so... um, one thing that's really fun is that in addition to um, the the main thing I do is producing features, but I write a lot of news too. And when things like the Northern California wildfires hit or when Trump announces a new round of tariffs on wine. Um, major I, news stories. Major news stories. And that's just so thrilling for me. It's, it's really fun to be a part of that. But um, the main part of, you know, the kind of core of what I do is producing Features about wine and sometimes also about beer, spirits, bars uh, for our Sunday food section. And I assign stories to freelancers. More and more, I I write more of our wine coverage and assign out more of our uh, other drinks coverage. So here's where, I wouldn't say I'm a little confused, but I guess more curious. <laughs> um, your title is Wine Critic. And you even just explained it, and I don't see it as, you know, a wine critic. So (laughs) how do you mostly see yourself as a wine critic, as a wine writer, as a cultural critic slash writer, wine reviewer, something else? I know you're probably going to say all the above, but, you know, where do you kind of see yourself? It's an excellent question, and I, in a lot of ways, I see my, you know, the the major work of my role is is trying to define what I want that to be. But certainly I don't resemble a wine critic in the most traditional sense of that term, yes. which is um, the type of critic I might have become had I stayed at Wine Spectator, um, which is really uh, providing wine reviews and scores. Right. Right. Um, and it's interesting, Eric Asimov, another Just wrote an article. Podcast, he had a great article. And of course his title is Wine Critic. And um, 
he, well, I mean, he, he does star wines. Right. But I would, I would say that's a pretty minor part of what he does. At least it looks like it from the outside. He and does wine course, school and features and all that, but he'll cover yeah. wine. Yeah. Right. And he does, you know, he'll give kind of straight up wine recommendations. Um, right. and, uh, and, and he had a great piece this week, I thought, about how we should maybe try to reconsider how we define the term wine critic. I mean, we have a new restaurant critic who just started um, a few months ago, Sileho, and she's decided to do away with the star system. Mm. You know, we used to always award restaurant reviews on a basis of four stars, and we've done away with that. Um, so I, I absolutely see myself as a critic um, in, in kind of one part of my job. The most important part of my job, I think, is being a wine critic. And yet, I think it's a, a different medium of criticism than what most wine criticism has been in the past. I think you're, you, the term you use, cultural critic, gets close to what I really hope to be doing. I think there's a critical and kind of opinion-based, expert opinion-based way of thinking about the wine world. That's what I love writing about. I mean, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is trying to kind of look at these things and say, how should we be thinking about this? What are the types of questions we should be asking? And uh, I'm, I'm not nearly as interested in telling people, is this a very good wine or merely a, you know, satisfactory wine? Um, I, so, so I think that's kind of one part of it. But the coolest part about my job at the Chronicle is I don't really have to choose. I mean, I'm also a news reporter. I'm also a feature writer. I'm also, at, and then I do make kind of straight up wine recommendations, what we call service journalism. I think that's incredibly important, um, trying to tell people where to go, what to drink, what to spend their money on. Right. So I, do, I, I get to do a little bit of all that. You know, I was going to ask you, you know, why is the Chronicle, why is their wine coverage different than other wine publications? I think you just answered that with the diversity mm -hmm. and depth and all of that. But who's the audience you're writing to? I mean, there was that existing audience, there was John's audience, there's the papers demo. <clears throat> but who, do you, who are you writing to? Who do you think you have to write to? Well, I wish I knew who that, who that person, that kind of prototypical reader was a little better. But the way I think about it is this. Um, my primary mission is to write for the, the San Francisco Chronicle's readership. And... Um, we really are, in many ways, a regional paper. I think we're maybe the best regional paper in the country. And we cover what I think is one of the most fascinating places in the world, the San Francisco Bay Area, Northern California. Uh, this is the epicenter of so much, including <coughs> American wine. And um, I think our readers are, uh, I think of my, my reader as the kind of typical reader of the paper, which is um, a very intelligent, informed amateur when it comes to wine. Right. So the people who live in San Francisco are, uh, for the most part, um, interested in drinking well, in eating well, in living a good life. They're willing probably to spend a little more money on luxuries like wine than people in other parts of the country. But I certainly don't expect everyone I know to have an advanced understanding of the intricacies of wine or the wine industry or winemaking and or the money um, too or yeah absolutely and i i i try to really hold uh my subjects accountable for charging the kinds of prices they charge i mean everything here is inflated ultimately real estate is inflated and that drives a lot of things in california but um you did a yeah, I, you wrote about a very famous chef happens to be a woman and in San Francisco and sitting at the bar and having a little snack and a glass of wine, you know, yeah. this was San Francisco was, you know, astronomical, almost $400 unrealistic, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a little of that going on. We feel like we're living in a bubble. It, it, I mean, it's just crazy. And, um, yeah, and I and and you know it's not just going out to restaurants in San Francisco. It's people who are buying vineyards in Napa and Sonoma, and I write a lot about that. I think that's but so 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 the readership question. I mean, what I hope is that 
by telling these stories about Northern California the best way we can, I think there's inherently nat- national, international interest in that. Agreed. I mean, if you care about wine, you care about California wine, or at least you should care about California wine. And I think we have the resources and uh, the the potential to cover California wine better than anyone in the country. Uh, we're the paper of record for this region, and I'm in. I can be in wine country in 45 minutes, and I spend a lot of time there. And I I just think, and we have. I have an amazing paper behind me with incredible editors, incredible photographers, a lot of reach, a lot of clout. And so I hope that we can win readers just because uh, these are national stories, ultimately. And I agree with you. And, you know, we'll talk about it, hopefully, if we have time. And because of the Internet, you know, you're not just getting this. You know, you're getting people who care about California wine you know, that don't live there, that'll go there. But we'll get to that. Um, before we take a break, because we still have a lot to talk about, but I got a break, I want you to talk to me a little about the process of, you know, how you get a story published in the paper. I mean, does it come down to you pitching ideas or you assign stories? I mean, do you have inspirations at night and you pursue them? Are you juggling, <laughs> you know, a lot of different ideas? You know, and then give me a little sense of, you know, your writing philosophy and, you know, objectives, objectives sometimes. Because beyond wine, you know, I said in the intro, there's people, culture, place, um, and issues out there. So tell me a little about, you know, the process. There's some structure, I guess, right? Yeah, there's a lot of structure. Um, So I'm in an ongoing discussion all the time with my editor, um, Paolo Lucchese, who oversees all our food coverage, of stories I want to write, stories I'm starting to write. And um, he gives me a lot of freedom. I mean, if I have a story idea, I might just start pursuing it and then start talking to him. But there's always many stories in the works. Uh, It's kind of ends up being this staggered process, partly because my stories tend to take longer to report than um, people who are reporters in the newsroom who are just turning over these daily quick news hits. Um, And also because we have the luxury of that being one of the Sunday feature sections. Um, So I mean, it took me a day to read that Renaissance cult winery (laughs) piece. It seemed like it went on forever, but I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, well, that's, I mean, that's an example of a piece that was in the works for, six months. Um, I've had many stories that are in the works for six months. It almost reminds me of when I used to work at magazines because that was about the lead time on those. Um, But so, uh, you know, um, in terms of ideas for stories to write, I've, I mean, the little internal personal document I keep with all my story ideas right now, I, I, if I didn't come up with a new idea for five years, I would have enough. I mean, there's just so many stories I want to write, and I'm waiting for the chance to, waiting for the time to. Um, but when I have a great story idea, when, or when I think the time is right for something, when I want to get to work on something, assuming it's not breaking news because that you just drop everything and start, right. you pick up the phone. Um, I, I'm constantly talking to my editor about it. He knows what I'm working on, and I want his feedback. I mean, I want his ideas and his, his kind of sensibilities to shape it. Um, and I usually get to take my time. I mean, most stories require me to do at least a day, maybe multiple days of reporting. That's usually in wine country, you know, say that means being with the the subject or at the place type thing. Yeah. So, um, again, I tend those, so I'm, you know, maybe on average one day a week, sometimes more. Um, sometimes there's a week when I'm not out of the office, but I'm usually somewhere um, at wineries most of the time, uh, people I intend to write about. Um, and uh, every story is different. I mean, every story, some stories, you go up there, you spend an afternoon with the people, you kind of get their story, and then I can tell it. Other stories are really complicated and require a lot of other interviews, um, some of which can be done over the phone, some of which can't be. Right. And, uh, I mean, I had a piece come out this week about Bryant Estate, which has a 
lawsuit against it. That was a really complicated, right. uh, legally sensitive piece. I did several interviews for background information with people that don't even get quoted just because... It was beyond wine. You know, it's business and law and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I, I don't know, eventually, once I've kind of gathered all my pieces, then I sit down and write. And I really take my time outlining. Uh, I, I really take a while. Sometimes I'll take a whole afternoon, basically, to kind of look at my notes. I usually print them out, and I try to have a grip on the basic structure of the story before I really sit down and start writing. And that's mostly just to prevent myself from becoming frozen with writer's block. <laughs> By the time I sit down in right. front of a Word document, I want, I want to know where it's going. Right. Um, we have to take a quick break. Um, we'll finish up when we come back. Um, I want to talk to you about a bunch of other things, um, including women and wine um, and a bunch of issues that relate to wine. And, of course, I want to subject you to our wine list <laughs> and see what you're thinking. So we're talking to Esther Mobley. Esther is the wine critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Esther. <laughs> Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine and Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine and Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, Fine and Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries. You get the idea. Above all, Fine and Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. All right. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Esther Mobley. Esther is the wine critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, Esther, tell me the years that you've been there pushing for in those years, tell me about some of the changes and trends, you know, that you witnessed or, you know, sort of see ramp up, um, at your tenure, um, anything come jump out? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the really big things that's changed in the last four years in wine is the importance of natural wine to the greater wine conversation. I mean, I've written a lot about it. Um, it seems that natural wine, when, you know, kind of in the days, I loved your interview with Jenny last week, but um, she and talking her talking about when she was so uh, becoming interested in natural wine, and she was really just out there. There was not much of a movement to speak of. No. I mean, think about when Alice Firing was first publishing her books, and it seemed like this really fringe thing. Um, I think the conversation has really ramped up. There's just an incredible swell of interest in natural wine. I'm astonished. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who aren't in the wine world, really, and they're kind of drinking wine seriously and thoughtfully for the first time because the natural wine movement really speaks to them. Almost every wine bar we're seeing open here is natural wine focused. Uh, I think that's just become a huge, huge part of the conversation that's impossible to ignore. So it's not a debate and it's not a divisive issue. Natural wines have legitimately come on the scene and people who are interested will pursue it, right? Like, you know, a bunch of your friends are interested. 
We don't have to compare it or talk about other stuff because it's a pretty polarizing topic. You got to admit, right? It's a very polarizing topic, and I I completely understand why. I wish uh, we could kind of start over and start talking about it differently. Um, You know, uh, I think it can be frustrating to a lot of um, wine lovers, winemakers who don't identify as natural winemakers um, because the implication of, of the existence of natural wine is that other wine is what, unnatural? Right. And, of course, that's maybe not a fair characterization of a lot of wines. Um, I think there's a kind of stylistic conflation um, of natural wines processes with its, its ultimate kind of profile. And, you know, a natural wine doesn't have to be funky. Um, right. There's uh, that illusion that it is. Right. And so I think there's a lot of really con- things, uh, there's a lot of kind of barriers to the conversation that I want to be having about natural wine. Um, and it's funny, I, I know a number of people, sommeliers, if I ever kind of express interest in it or want to talk about it, they're like, not you too. <laughs> Don't tell me you've gone over to the dark side. And I'm what just does like, that mean? is this really where we are? I mean, we can't, I, I just think it's, it's, silly to ignore this major groundswell that's happening in the first place. And secondly, as a reporter, as a cultural critic, whatever I am, um, what a fascinating story. I mean, what an incredible thing to be observing and chronicling and writing about. I mean, it's like an avant-garde art movement or something. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I, I agree. You know, let it, let it go and grow. You know, like anything else you could pick and choose. Give me, tell me another thing that you've noticed, you know, that's either changed, you know, moved around or is a trend um, on your beat. I think one thing that's happening and this, this certainly isn't confined to the last four years, (laughs) but the, the energy of California wine is increasingly moving out of Napa Valley. Um, And that's for reasons we, kind of alluded to earlier, mostly based around the cost of doing business there. Um, This, you know, there's a, there's a kind of central story that Napa is becoming too uh, expensive. And I feel like I'm, I'm slowly writing stories about all the little spokes on that fundamental wheel. Um, So one thing that's happening is all the kind of ambitious, young, interesting winemakers who might live in Napa, who might have a day job in Napa, are moving out to the Sierra Foothills, to Santa Barbara. Uh, to How the about Central the piece you did? Uh, I think they went to Europe. <laughs> right. A couple who um, certainly had, um, you know, good, well-paying jobs. They had funds. They had cash. There's no reason why they, you know, they were in their 50s. They were experienced wine industry veterans. There was no reason why they shouldn't have been able to start something small, but they claim they couldn't even afford to buy a house in Napa. Wow. And then they bought a um, chateau in the outskirts of Bordeaux for under $500,000. Wow. Pretty incredible. <laughs> so they're making wine there. They, the, you know, it's, it's this old winery and home that they purchased. And um, yeah, that, that story really seemed to resonate with a lot of people. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we're just a lot of, a lot of the there's a bit of a brain drain leaf from in terms of Napa winemaking talent. I think. Um, I mean, there are certainly many exceptions. Um, a lot of people who, a lot of young people who are inheriting their families' businesses are staying in Napa, working for those wineries. And I think generational really, change, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, that's another funny thing um, at the Chronicle. My some of my colleagues tease me that I'm on the obituary beat because we're really seeing a, a major generational turnover right now. In, and if you think about this kind of generation of people who came and started wine businesses in the 70s, um, the reality is that a lot of those people are reaching the ends of their lives now. Right. And that's part of why we're seeing so many of these big mergers and acquisitions, the big wine corporations buying 
the smaller wineries that simply don't have a succession plant, don't have kids in place to take it over. Right. Acquisition has been crazy the last five, ten years. Um, crazy. Like you were talking about Brian, that whole legal thing falls on Bettina, you know, not even her parents anymore. It's just right. funny how she's in the thick of that. Um, there's a million other things, but I, I want to move <laughs> on. But those are, you know, two good ones, and we slipped a few things. And can we talk about women and wine for a couple of minutes? Yeah. Um, I told you off air, you know, that I thought you were a testament in the sense that one is a woman and certainly a millennial. Because we talked a little about, you know, getting one of the most coveted jobs, you know, at your ripe young age. Um, you buck the trends. Um, so I guess the obvious big question is being a woman in wine still an obstacle versus men? Um, and then, you know, for you, is age an issue? And I think your answer should sort of address, you know, what you've seen writing and um you know, covering and talking to people and yourself, you know, so I'm curious your take on that. Well, I think, uh, you know, there are certainly many women who have forged incredibly successful careers in wine in all, all corners of it, but I do believe that it's still, um, there's still a lot of obstacles for women. And, uh, the fact of the matter is, it's a really male-dominated business. It's um, a business that's really white, and um, it's. I, I just think women who are in the wine industry. I mean, I'm a reporter, but um, I've kind of been in other sides of it. But so it's a very social job. It's a job where there's a lot of drinking, of course. Right. And. Um, I think a lot of women end up being in kind of compromised positions a lot of the time. Um, I think wine circles can often just really feel like a boys club. Uh, still. And yeah. Still, I, right? I think so. Okay. I mean, I just think look at the the demographics. Look at the numbers. I mean, look at how many more men there are in higher-up positions in wineries, in um, the wine sales side of things. Um that's not to say that I don't think we're making really incredible strides. I mean, I look around at the the wine writers who I read now, and there's certainly a lot of great uh, male wine writers I read obsessively, but I I think it's pretty incredible. I read Kelly White. I read Marissa Ross. I I mean, there's just an amazing amount of young youngish women who I think have really come out as writers in the last several years, and I'm thrilled by that. Well, but, you know... Go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just... I mean, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will have uh, followed the uh, piece of satire that Ron Washam published recently about Alice Firing, and... Uh, pretty wicked. I think, I think that's an example of the sexism. I mean, that... The idea that a man wrote that, another man published that, and that any number of people kind of looked at that and thought, oh, that's funny. Um, it really took a lot of people, men and women, speaking out to start a conversation about, was that okay? Did that take it too far? But don't you think if uh, Alice was a guy, you know, it kind of would have blown by a little quicker? May, well, I Maybe. think it wouldn't have been written that way. Right. I mean, maybe, that, that's right. the gist it, of it. Yeah, and so I just think when we're still in an environment where that feels somehow permissible, I mean, think about any other field that has undergone this major reckoning of its sexual politics over the last couple of years, and the wine industry really has yet to do that. And would you agree there's still a lot of uh, mansplaining in wine? Absolutely, and here's something I think about a lot, you know... Um, all of our stories on the Chronicle, this is a lot of publications are doing this nowadays. There's a little picture of the author that appears next to the byline. So um, I get a lot of emails from readers, uh, and I get a lot of emails from um, older male readers that are completely mansplaining to me. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm here in a position of some authority, and... Uh, I'm getting these emails from people kind of explaining wine to me. And I often think, would I be getting those emails if my picture weren't next to my byline and you saw that I'm a young Good point. woman? Good point. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe I still would. I mean, there's always going to no, be. Oh, I, I, I think you're right. Out there, but. It's like when a woman psalm comes out and a bunch of old guys go, can you send the psalm over? Exactly. You know, I mean, just... you're right. Or, or when I, you know, order wine in a restaurant and they want to give the wine list to a man I'm with. Right. I mean, right. I, I think there's still a lot of that. And uh, that's, you know, I, I am thrilled. I, the editor-in-chief of The Chronicle is a woman, the woman below her who I report to, um, really amazing, successful women who empower other women. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to work for them and in that environment. And I know so many great, amazing women. But I, I check myself in my own coverage, and this goes to part of what you asked. Um, you know, I'm aware that I end up writing about a lot of men. And um, the last several, the last three winemakers of the year that I've named have been men. Mm. Um, and... Uh, there's a lot of great women out there. It's not for lack of women. Um, and I, I'm sure I need to be more thoughtful in my own coverage about trying to be more representative of, of the true diversity of who's out there. Step one is awareness, which is good. Yeah. Step two is acting. So you're aware, you know, now <laughs> you take the time and figure out how to um, act. But I, I agree with all of that. Without incriminating your past employer... You know, I think the Chronicle gives you more leeway to write about a lot more stuff where your old employer just seemed like, to me, not putting words in your mouth, <laughs> you know, talking more to that men's club. Agree? Well, it's a different, it's a completely different readership. So, right. you know, anyone who's more complex a subscriber to Wine Spectator, they're, they're more interested in wine, they're interested in a different type of wine, <clears throat> um, right. and they're they're very thoughtful about that. I mean... When I was there, I remember we would have meetings and they would have done these really detailed um, surveys of who our readers are, what they are interested in, what their income is. And um, so I, I think they know who their audience is. Um, I think we're all, we all have to question who will our audience be 10 or 15 years from now. Right. Um, but absolutely, I, I love that I now in my current role really get to write for people like me and like my friends. Um, right. And that's much You're more You're more comfortable with that. All right, yeah. listen, I, I had a list of things I wanted to get your take on, <laughs> but we're running out of time because I want to do the wine list. But you get to pick one of them and spend a minute on it. I wanted to get your take on, and li let me list them all and you pick one. I wanted to get your take <laughs> on social media and the Internet, how it applies to wine. I wanted to either get your take on millennials Climate change, I think, has come on the surface. I think mm. you've addressed natural wine a little. So pick yeah. one of those, and let's just talk about a quick take on that. Let's, how about climate change? Okay. So, um, I, well, I mean, it's funny. How about climate change? And then I probably don't know any more than you do about how it's ultimately going to affect wine. But um, I think about climate change in the context of wine all the time. I think if you look at where... Uh, where historic temperature trends have gone, there's no question that in many of our premier wine regions, there's a warming pattern. And in the short term, I think that's actually led to some really successful vintages uh, in Europe, in the U.S., in a lot of places. I mean, where I think maybe we'll look back on this era as a really kind of sweet spot of ripeness. We can get the grapes pretty ripe. Um, but... I am not convinced that as uh, climate change continues that we'll be able to grow the same grape varieties in the same places we do now. Um, I mean, of course, people like to cite examples like the rise of um, England as a sparkling wine region right. or look at a place like British Columbia that um, has just been on the rise, probably in no small part due to climate change. But um, it's not just warming temperatures. It's the... I mean, here in California, we are thinking constantly about drought and uh, which the could kind lead of erratic to fires, fires, and right. just all of the erratic weather patterns. But at the same time, we have been having we've also had flooding and right. really uh, excessive amounts of precipitation. We're seeing the rise of um, insects and in, you know harmful pests in vineyards that didn't exist many years ago. Um, I mean, Pierce's disease. People don't talk about it as much, but that's a major threat to a place like Napa Valley. 
Um, and right. they're working really hard to figure out how that's going to work. So right. um, That's behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff, you know, that people don't hear about. Um, you and I could probably do a show on climate change <laughs> because, you know, it does have a direct effect. But we have to end it there because I want to do the wine list. Um, we have about five minutes left, which is forcing me to rush you, but I think you can <laughs> handle the task. So this is our weekly wine list. We ask our guests the same five questions. Try to get a little uh, insight into, you know, what you're drinking. Um, so don't dwell on these. Don't overthink them. And give me your best answer. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? And that's in the context of, you know, what are you trying? Does the season uh, affect what you're drinking? Are you tasting through stuff, you know, for writing? So what's in the fridge? What's on the table? Well, I have about 16 open bottles of wine in the fridge, which is difficult <laughs> okay. for me. But, um one thing I've been, I'm, I'm working on a story right now about Charbonneau, which is this kind of um, mostly forgotten heritage White grape wine. variety in California. It's, um, it's red wine. It originates in France's Savoie, and there's very little of it left. There was a lot more planted um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but now uh, there's just this kind of, um, there's a few vineyards that still have some in Calistoga. I know I've had so Turley. Yeah, exactly. Turley, they used to make a Charbonneau. They no longer do. No but more, huh? there's, there's a surprising, I mean, there's about 20 producers that still make California Charbonneau. Give me uh, one or two for people to uh, seek out. One great one is Toffinelli. T-O-F-A-N-E-L-L-I? Uh, correct. Okay. And um, it's this guy, Vince Toffinelli. He owns a vineyard in Calistoga. He farms. He may be one of the only people in California who legitimately farms his own grapes, and I mean he's in the tractor, and makes his own wine with his hands. I mean, you just don't, and is, and owns the land. Um, he's a great old-timer. His Charbonneau is beautiful. It ages really well. It's a really tannic wine. It's kind of an Italian-like right. wine, um, but it's, it's bright, and um, it's really easy drinking. Another thing, I, I have a lot of Australian Riesling um, I've been going through lately. I love Australian Riesling, and uh, I spent too much of my life not drinking it. Now I'm Give me I'm really uh, enjoying a maker that you're enjoying. I love Pusey Vale. Um, Spell that. Australia's Eden Valley. P-E-W-S-E-Y. Okay. And then Vale, V-A-L-E. All right. So um, and those wines can age. Don't be afraid to hold them back. Right. Um, Charbonneau is definitely a first. So is Tuffinelli <laughs> and Australian Riesling. When you talk Riesling, you don't always go to Australia. All right. Uh, Esther's favorite wine and food pairing. It's our goofy question. Ooh. But what, it's not something you eat every week or every month. But, you know, what? what's memorable to you? What, what goes well? I love, like, um, champagne with popcorn. That's not a okay. That's not a revolutionary You're not the idea, first person, but. <laughs> but that fried foods and salty foods—that's a very fun mm. combination. Um, you know what our grape nation rule is: you can't say champagne and oysters. So thank God you didn't do that. Well, I I wouldn't be opposed to drinking that either. No, 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 I love no, that. No. The other thing is, I know it's not fashionable, but I love dessert wine. I really love great dessert wine, yeah. and I love. Like Sauterne or Trappistère Nationale, with like a fruit dessert, like let's say a fruit tart. tart. Um, okay. Yeah. Those are good ones. Yeah. All right. Favorite wine restaurant and our bar and or bar, and these are places um, with a slant, you know, towards selection, knowledge, creative. You can give me. You could stay in San Fran, maybe Napa. You know, give me a couple. You know, and don't be, you know, you're not being exclusive. If you leave people out, that doesn't mean you don't <laughs> love them or whatever. But who does it well? Good. Well, um, I'm going to give you three. One is a, a wine bar, and it's just a few blocks from where I live here in San Francisco. It's called High Treason. Okay. It's um, a fabulous wine bar. It's run by um, John Vuong and Michael Ireland, two guys who abandoned kind of Michelin stars, solve jobs to start this hip um, very casual wine bar. They always bring in winemakers to um, be DJs for a night and spin records. And they have just an enormous by-the-glass list every night. And 
whenever I go in there, um, I always discover something new. They're, they can always um, pour for me something I've never had before, and I love that. Nice to have it local. All right, what else? Yeah. And then um, there's two other great, great wine restaurants in San Francisco that remind me in some ways a lot of each other. They're both in the Mission, which is a neighborhood I used to live in. Right. One is called Heirloom Cafe. Right. It's run by this guy, Matt Strauss. The other is called The Morris, and it's run by ah, Paul Einbund. Right. Um, you might know Paul. So uh, yep. both are really wine-focused restaurants. They're owned by wine guys. And both Paul and Matt started their restaurants in order to serve wine. Both restaurants, I think what really sets them apart for me is the wine lists are really built on both of those guys' personal sellers. They've been stocking up wine for years, um, both with the dream of then opening their own restaurant. And the food in both places is fabulous. I love going there. But, um, But in both cases, you're really getting the individual kind of playlist of these brilliant calm minds and i just love that you can feel their passion for the wines they've stocked they're not always the wines you would expect um to have in such quantity and depth of verticals but um both are great places the morris and heirloom esther that's that's how you answer that question spot on (laughs) all right esther's favorite all-time wine um, it used to be the most expensive, the rarest, you know, one time. It's evolved away from that. It's become, you know, experiential or, you know, the first time you tried a whatever, even a Lambrusco. What, what's an all-time wine that, you know, is memorable to you or impressionable or was important? It's so hard to pick one. I feel like Give me I have a, couple. a wine epiphany every week. But, I mean, so um, my first trip to Burgundy was... My first and only trip to Burgundy uh, was really eye-opening for me, and um, I the, I can say I think with certainty that the best wine I tasted in Burgundy was um, Georges de Vogue uh, Les Amoureux, a Premier nice. Cru in Mutiny. Um I love that wine, and if I ever um, make it big, make it rich, I will buy a bottle of that wine. But, okay. um, that's that's one of the most memorable. All right, that is, uh, I get that. On a memorable wine trip. Yeah. All right, so let's leave it at that. All right, let's wrap this up because we got to wrap the show. We're running late already. Give me, and you should be able to answer this. Best wine mm-hmm. around fifteen twenty bucks. Give me a red. Give me a white. You can give me a region. You can give me a grape. You can give me specific stuff. But you know. You've heard me say this before. My kids are going to a party. They're not going to spend eight, nine bucks and look like schmucks. They're not going to spend 30, 40 because they don't have it. That sweet spot could be around 15, 17, 18, 20. Give me a red. Give me a white. Okay. So um, those can be really hard to find in California, unfortunately. But, but think I'm broader. You know, think you. global. No, I'm going California. Okay. It's easy to be like, oh, Beaujolais or. There you go. Maine, but, but it's possible to find them in California. So, um, one great wine for mm, closer to twenty dollars is um, a producer called Biracino. That's B I R I C H I N O. Right. Um, and it's uh, these two guys based in Santa Cruz. They make um, a beautiful Grenache from the Basson Vineyard that I think covers just under twenty dollars. Like it might be nineteen dollars, and it's gorgeous. It's um, the, the kind of direction a lot of California Grenache is going right now, which is this very lightly extracted, um, kind of pale, right. very restrained. floral, restrained um, example, and I just love that. It's it's a beautiful wine. Give me a white. A white? Okay, so um, some actually from a similar region, but um, the, the guy I named Winemaker of the Year last year in 2018 is a winemaker named Ian Brand. He's based in Monterey. And I just think he's producing some of the best values in California wine today. Spell he his last sh- name? Brand, B-R-A-N-D. Oh, like it like, sounds. Okay. Know, brand. Okay. Um, and he he makes a beautiful Chardonnay that's under $20 um, under his label called Le Petit Paisan, the little peasant. Right. And um, to me, it is what I want a, a Chardonnay to be at an even higher price point. It's got tension. It's, it's not just a kind of sleek, razor-like, uh, zingy thing. It's got some body. It's got some texture. But ultimately, it's um, 
I mean, it's a wine that's driven by acid. It's a coastal wine. It's a Monterey wine that you get all this kind of saline sea character right. from. And um, it, I, I never want a Chardonnay to be any more than that. It sounds great. Um, I forgot to tell everyone, I post all our answers on our social media. So everything you mentioned, you know, I will eventually post on Facebook and Instagram because the whole reason for doing this is to turn people on, you know, to some of these recommendations. Esther, I told you the hour would go quickly. We've run late. It certainly did. We have to wrap up. <laughs> Let me do our closing. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby, and you can follow the hashtag thegrapenation. On Facebook, we're at thegrapenation. And on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's confusing, but whatever. Also, subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, like I said, we'll post Esther's wine list on our social media sites. Esther, we didn't talk about it, but you do other writings in other places. You mentioned, you know, maybe the... Uh, maybe you didn't. But where can we find you on social media and all your wine writings. You can find all my wine writing at sfchronicle.com slash wine. Okay. Um, you can also, I have a personal website, estermobley.com, where I also post all my stories. You can find me on Instagram at estermob, E-S-T-H-E-R-M-O-B. Right. And that's about it. Okay. Do it. <laughs> all right, Esther, I want to thank you. Um, I made an exception. We did Esther by phone because obviously Esther's based out in California. June is Women and Wine Month. I thought it would be important to have Esther on, and it was worth it for me to put her through a phone line. But as I requested earlier, when you come to New York, you promised me that we would get together and raise a glass. Absolutely. I want you I to confirm wait. that. So, <laughs> Esther, thank you. Um, Good luck with everything. We'll continue to read all your stuff. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Rubin. You've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.